Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Let the word go forth. Fool me once. Are you fired up? I'm not a crook. Are you ready to go? Shame on, shame on you. It's Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, hosted by Ben Kissel. Boom, we can't get fooled again. Hey, what's up, everyone? How you doing? Ben Kissel here. Uh, with uh, Travis Morningstar. Looking forward to a an extremely normal year. Of course, always. Uh, today's it's going to be a fun episode. I'll tell you that much, folks. Uh, a little bit later on in this episode, I have an interview with immigration attorney. He's a dude out of San Antonio, Texas. His name is Lance Kurtwright. Uh, so I am absolutely excited to speak with him. And then next week... I uh, have an interview coming out with Rabia Oshadri, who wrote the book on Adnan Syed, who, of course, was the main subject for the world-famous podcast, Serial. So stick around. Be sure you tune in next week uh, for my interview with her. I absolutely cannot wait. And, of course, my interview coming up a little bit later on in this episode. So let's just start with the biggest news uh, maybe in U.S. history, yep. <laughs> possibly, like legitimately, not an understatement. We're going to focus on the shutdown here for a couple of minutes, and then we'll get to the interview. So we got the shutdown now, this government shutdown over this make-believe crisis. Uh, again, it's not a crisis if you can plan it, if you can you know, make make arrangements around it. It's obviously mm-hmm. a, uh, a crisis made by Donald Trump. Uh, it's a political crisis. This happens all the time and certainly a horrible precedent for the president to set the idea that they can just declare potentially a national emergency, a state of national emergency, because they're not getting their political will. If you think about this from a conservative perspective and from a libertarian perspective, um, this greatly expands the power of the executive branch, greatly expands uh, the power of the president. And when we talk about the protection of constitutional rights, they are at risk here, not just under Donald Trump, but going forward. And if you want to, if you are a Republican that's supporting him, if you are a more libertarian dude or woman that's supporting him, think about this when a Democrat gets into office mm-hmm. and they want to declare, uh, declare a national emergency because of the gun true crisis sure. that's happening in this country with, uh, with the unbelievable uh, amount of gun deaths that occur on a regular basis in this nation. Theoretically, if they want to take a page out of Donald Trump's book, they can declare a national emergency, say we're coming for your guns. Uh, time to give up your Second Amendment rights, folks. So you got to be careful. Always remember, 
Donald Trump's not going to be there forever. Might be there for a limited time only. Who knows if he does go with the national emergency? Uh, a lot of people have said impeachment is much, much more likely. Um, but you're not in power. Your par- your party is not in power for long. And as we saw when it comes to the filibuster vote in the Senate, taking it down uh, from a 60 uh, to 51, as we see on a regular basis, the next party that's going to be uh, elected are going to use the laws that you currently make or the new normal. Yeah. Uh, they're going to take the new normal and implement it for their own political reasons and for their own political goals. So if you are someone who is libertarian, wants small government, which in many, many ways is an accurate point of view, this is the opposite and of th- that. This is the moment to have outrage. There's like total there, outrage. There is an impressive <laughs> lack of outrage. And it's it, like the Democrats are NPCs in a video game, like Schumer and Pelosi standing robotically and, and the rebuttal to hit well, to Trump's uh, a big so we had we national had, emergency declaration or whatever it was. We had Donnie. He gave his first speech from the Oval Office, about 10 minutes long. We'll just talk just briefly about the theatrics, not the content. We'll get into the content. Theatrically, um, he presented it. It was fine. I mean, he's the president. You get the luxury of having the greatest film set mm-hmm. in the world, which is the Oval Office. And so, you know, he's going on the whole. The problem is, of course, the entire the content is entirely flawed. Right. <laughs> so that's the problem. Theatrically, uh, you know, it was great production values. It was fine. You're, you're the president. Watch, you watch an old man learn how to rebreathe, uh, you know, for 10 minutes. Uh, he, I don't know why he's always like doing invisible lines of coke. <laughs> Like, I don't understand how that happens. Like, I don't know how your breathing patterns have to work for you to. Con- I talk for a living. And I don't think anyone has ever heard me breathe through my nostrils. But uh, then we also had so that was so that was that talking to his base didn't really expand his agenda, didn't really expand his supporters whatsoever. Maybe threw some red meat out there. And then we got Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. Now, again, this is the problem with binary choices. They came across. I'm sure you all watched it. The substance of their argument was, you know, I get what they're saying. The wall is immoral. We're not paying the five bill, whatever. Um, but my God, it just get a different director. Like you're, I thought you were the Democratic Party. Aren't you supposed to be like aligned with Hollywood? Just get anyone to be like. Maybe Chuck Schumer shouldn't look like the entity from It Follows. Uh, shouldn't look like he's about to murder a family of seven. He looks so like I don't know why he put on his like I'm serious face. Like no one gives like stop. Uh, Nancy Pelosi slightly better performance, but together. It was just they looked. The optics were freaking horrible. They they moved like the band from the Chuck E. Cheese uh, stage. Like, yeah, it was. Too- there, was there a note on the teleprompter that said "pivot robotically" and nod? Uh, it was crazy. So th- you know they didn't do themselves any favors. But this is bigger than both of these parties. Uh, this is affecting 800,000 federal workers right now. We're going to talk about the workers it's affected. We're going to talk about its effect on, a, on the economy. And then we're going to talk about what are the potential steps going forward. Because at some point, the government is going to have to open. It has to happen. Does so, it? It must. Does it? It must happen. I think we're... And of we're, course, if Donald Trump does declare a, na- uh, a, a state of national emergency, the, the courts are not siding with him on this 
crazy, crazy idea. But we'll talk more with Lance uh, about that a little bit later on in the episode. So just just a little bit here on what's going on with the 800,000 employees that are currently since December 22nd, just in time for Christmas and New Year's, not getting paid. TSA and, of course, air traffic controllers, they're not getting paid. Now, this is a someone who flies. Travis and I both fly quite regularly. Uh, that is freaking horrifying. Now, I know the TSA is mostly a charade. It's mostly, uh, uh, you know, to give the uh, to give the sense of safety, mm-hmm. do the vast majority of things when they do the tests, get through. But my friend was going through uh, to take a flight this well to go. I think it was about maybe six, seven days ago. Uh, she asked if she should take her laptop out of her bag, which, of course, you you always do. For those that don't fly often, laptop comes out, cell phone comes out. All your electronics come out. You put them in a freaking bin like you've committed a felony, uh, and you're getting ready to get checked into jail. Shoes come off, all of this stuff. Um, and the TSA employee told her, don't bother, I'm not getting paid. So nice. this is horrifying. And then, of course, we have even more serious than TSA in some ways. Those people that keep planes from crashing into each other. Uh, air traffic controllers. Now, this is a job, high-stress job. They, they're they limited to the amount of hours they work because they got to be on their A-game at all times. You can't go in friggin', you know 50 hours in because this is life and death. These people are not getting paid. So some of them have had to pick up second jobs. Mm-hmm. And again, that is horrifying. I don't want my air traffic controllers drowsy. I want them 100% aware because I would like to get home or arrive at my location or destination alive. And that's the exact thing that they do. So because of this, we're seeing, I mean, if you're a terrorist and I'm not giving any friggin' advice out there, but my God, any smart person would realize TSA is currently not on their A game. Air traffic controllers are being spread too thin because they had to pick up more jobs, perhaps, whatever it might be, or just not getting paid. Yeah, I always find money. To be a great motivator for work, terrorists should be really bullish on this, yeah, on this opportunity. Yeah, right? I would. Yeah, go if. Yeah, this is the bull market. Yeah. <laughs> this is the bull market for terrorism right now. That's for sure. Um, which is just horrifying, and the fact that this president is putting U.S. citizens' lives at risk, at greater risk of who knows what terrorism, planes colliding. Um, it's absolutely abhorrent and, again, just plays to the selfish nature of Donald Trump. And as we'll talk about with Lance a little bit later on as well, when it comes to the immigration courts, most immigration courts are shut down, are currently not processing immigrants. So we have this irony uh, where Republicans are railing against uh, undocumented workers, undocumented so-called aliens, which I hate that term, I think it's dehumanizing. But because the shutdown is in place, because the shutdown is happening, these courts aren't even filing perhaps deportation papers or whatever it might be. It It is unreal. And, of course, even some Republicans are peeling away from the president. But as we're seeing or not seeing when it comes to Mitch McConnell, who 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 where is he? <laughs> Mitch McConnell is just he's just like like immediately when he wants. I, I just hate that when you're a politician, things are hard. And then you just go away. Yeah. I mean, that's what killed Jimmy Carter's entire presidency was he just dipped out, I think, to Camp David or something for like 60 or 70 days. And people are like, where the hell are you? Yeah. McConnell. Where the hell is Mitch McConnell? McConnell just has like an away email message that says, I support the president. Exactly. That's it. Reach me when the government reopens. Exactly. Um, so because of that, 
uh, immigration courts not working. Also, we have a situation with government websites. Security uh, certificates for dozens of official websites have not been renewed. Uh, Affected websites include the U.S. Department of Justice, the Court of Appeals, and NASA. So that's great. NASA is a—it's no, not a secure website right now, folks. So you want to create a tangible, physical attack via terrorism? Have at it. Go through our airports, go through our seaports, and if you want to commit an act of cyber terrorism, have at it. Because we can't renew our freaking uh, security certificates for dozens of websites. According to Internet Services website Netcraft, more than 80 security certificates used by .gov have expired. Uh, Coast Guard, this is another thing that's happening. Coast Guard, again, uh, for the listeners of this show, you know that when it comes to drugs, the Coast Guard catch a huge amount of drugs because the majority, again, come through our air and seaports. Coast Guard is on the front line of the war on drugs. Around 8,500 Coast Guard civilian employees were offered, quote, a managing your finances during a furlough tip sheet. The suggestion is to, quote, get lean with household budgets, including babysitting, selling furniture or unwanted items, monetizing hobbies, picking up tutoring, or having a garage sale. That is true. That is, the government was like, how are we going to how are we going to help these people cope with our inability to govern? Sell your beanie baby. Sell your beanie baby. That's a perfect idea. Have a garage get sale. Get rid of Nanook. He's probably worth $37. On your front lawn. Unbelievable. Also, we have to think about uh, the FDA. We have some food safety fears. So the FDA has suspended, of course, that's the Food and Drug Administration. I know you know that, but maybe for our listeners outside of the country, they suspended all, quote, non-essential work causing nationwide concerns over unsafe foods as most inspections have stopped. This is according to Scott Gottlieb. Uh, he is the FDA commissioner. He said this this past Wednesday. He said the agency was working to ensure, quote, high-risk facility checks continue. He said about one-third of the FDA's food inspections are considered high-risk, looking at goods like cheese, fresh produce, and seafood. He goes on to say it's not business as usual, and we're not doing all the things we would do under normal circumstances. So we have a situation where Food is now at risk because the government is shut down. Our uh, airports are less secure. Flying is less secure. And we have a situation where the Coast Guard can't do their jobs. We're going to have the same level of food scrutiny that was like in the gangs of New York. Of course. Um, And of course, uh, we also have the four mentioned that we mentioned on last episode, the parks. uh, They're struggling. They're Uh, they're actually uh, considering going private and actually charging admission. And and, because right now there's just they're just strewn with garbage and and, uh, waste and stuff. Because nobody's taking care of them. nothing. Nothing is being taken care of. New York City, we're keeping a Statue of Liberty open from our own money. In New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo has committed to paying sixty-five thousand bucks a day to ensure the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island stay rubbish-free and open for tourists. So we're seeing the effects of what what this looks like. What does a government shutdown look like in the long term? And we're beginning to really see those effects. So it's not just the human cost, but there's also an economic cost, which we'll get into in a second. But the human cost here, we're talking about potential life and death issues for a lot of people. Yeah. So, I mean, the reason why this is, it's all been political up until now. Uh, Funding has been 
supplied for government agencies and their employees up until the end of the year. Well, 2019 is here and that funding is about to run out. And so you're going to have 800,000 an upwards of 800,000 people not getting paychecks, like starting immediately. Right, right. And that means paychecks, people live paycheck to paycheck, even, you know, especially government employees. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, you have people who won't have money for medication, for mortgages, uh, for electricity. Absolutely. And people are going to you know, not to make it sound hysterical, people are going to die or be um, damaged. You Absolutely, know, uh, no. I mean, that's maimed the, by this by this thing in more ways than politically. These obviously. are very. This is very serious. The government, yeah, twenty five percent of the government shut down for tomorrow. That'll be twenty two days for the longest time. In American history is absolutely... Setting it's, it's, new benchmarks for embarrassment. Yeah, for, for how bad it can go. But now one of the ultimate ironies here is, and I know some people mention this, but if you actually look at uh, apprehensions on the U.S.-Mexico border, in 2000, we were at 1.6 million. Now that has dropped dramatically over the years. This year, or last year rather, 2018, was at 400,000. So this whole idea that somehow now what's happening on the U.S.-Mexico border can be considered a national emergency, while other previous administrations had over triple the amount uh, and it was not considered a national emergency, is just so stupid and (laughs) aggravating. And the American people are um, just – you can feel – the, the amount of anger, you can, this is going to be a massive political loser for Trump on every level, whether it be people who are rational on immigration or people who care about the economy. So what's going on right now with the economy? Economics estimate that the shutdown is likely to shave between 0.04% and 0.7% of gross domestic product. Of course, that is GDP. That's going to be shaved off of our economic growth per week, an average of just over $1 billion. Now, this actually is not as bad as some people speculated it could be. In 2013, that was a 16-day government shutdown. Uh, that We lost over $20 billion, uh, which affected much more of the government. It was a larger government shutdown. Therefore, the economic ramifications were bigger. So this is according to Joel Pracken. Now, he's chief U.S. economist at Macroeconomic Advisors by IHS Market. He says, as long as this shutdown is relatively short, these impacts are going to be fairly modest. Now, obviously, as I just mentioned, this is not going to be relatively short. It will be the longest in U.S. history. So as we haven't seen a huge economic hit yet, The toll will continue to mount, and it's going to get worse before it gets better. And the government, if it continues down this road, Donald Trump has said it could take weeks. The economy uh, will begin taking a drastic, drastic hit, which is going to harm, uh, as we've seen countless times, whether it be farmers going with the tariffs, not being able to get their $12 billion promise from the government to offset the costs of said tariffs. They're getting screwed, and now people— conservative perhaps, on Wall Street, financial, financially conservative, they're also going to be getting screwed. Donald Trump is throwing everyone under the bus. This is the definition of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Trump said very glibly, like, this this could be years, or uh, this could be months. It's going to be whatever it needs to be. And he's saying that the government shutdown, it's, 
it's a higher purpose than uh, your next paycheck. He literally said those words. Right. To it's, to the government. It reminds employees. me of what's going on in China, which, by the way, Donald Trump just praised China. They are currently eradicating Muslims, Christians, um, anyone who is religious. They are literally putting them in cages um, and forcing them to worship the great government that is China, of course, with Xi Jinping at the head of it. So when Donald Trump says that he likes China better than the opposition party, of course, the Democrats, that is absolutely un-American, completely yeah. insane. And, and again, not normal, should not be treated as normal. And we have to remind ourselves, presidents should not act that way. China is re-educating an entire ethnic group, the Uyghurs. Right. And Donald Trump, They are again, literally in re-education camps, right. uh, being imagine. monitored at all times. And that's the, yeah, that's the, the symbol of, of American... Yes. And uh, excellence. And, and of course, what they're doing with their technology, how nefarious they're using that with the credit system. The more pro-government you are, the better credit score you have. If Donald, if, if any other president, Barack Obama said something like that, you can imagine what the right would do. They would freak if, if Barack Obama said that the Chinese government is better than the Republican Party. That would be crazy. Like they would be going crazy. But because Trump just spews so much, it's easy for people on the right, I guess, to just hop over that sentence, go down the line of a, of a paragraph, and find something that you like, I suppose. But it's unbelievable to think if we put the same words that Trump says in the mouth of Obama. And again, you know me. I think Obama made a lot of and I'm not being like, oh, he's a god or something. But the fact of the matter is um, the right would be going Crazy and I mean, pushing for impeachment. You know, Trump is talking about uh, using executive authority to to put this yep. wall through. I mean, the last time, so Obama did that in, in 2012 with DACA, and they were saying that it was like treason. And yep. um, and of course, W used it when it came to um, after 9/11. Uh, when it comes to national emergencies, of course, Kennedy used it when it came to the Cuban Missile Crisis, and now Trump is using it for this reason. But I don't know why people are even trying to reason with they're like not not saying the same thing no. about trump this is insane and it is actually harming americans whereas daca was actually benefiting benefiting americans. around eight hundred thousand americans 000, yeah. ironically enough so just one little case study here so there's a gal her name is leela johnson she's 71 years old uh her part-time job as a custodian at the department of agriculture based 22 bucks an hour and helps uh, to supplement her retirement as she cares for her two great grandsons but her last paycheck arrived at the end of december miss johnson is now relying on her social security benefit to keep up with her car payments credit card credit card balance and other bills and is starting to fall behind this is according to her she says it's a struggle i have to pay a little here and a little there i'm doing the best i can but people need to go back to work to take care of their families so anyone that wants to talk about how people are lazy they don't like to work these people want to work they need to work and the fact that the government is stopping them from gainful employment is totally counterintuitive, completely counterproductive, and I think a big polit a political loser, inevitably for Trump, even though I don't even think the Democrats are looking very good here. I think everyone in this country is looking at government being like, do, like, th this, this is the smallest thing you can do. Stay open. Like, we're not yeah. even asking you to do it. It's just like, be open. It's so easy. Just fund the government <laughs> for like another <laughs> month so that people could eat. Oh my God. But you it's, know, you know what? These people are being selfish. They don't need paychecks. They need to no. serve the higher purpose of, of, course. of a wall. Of course. So what's going to happen from here? So number one, what could happen? Donald Trump declares a national emergency. 
Um, the president's address fell just shy of declaring a national emergency. Of course, that was the one earlier this week. If Mr. Trump does invoke his presidential powers, he could bypass Congress and obtain the means for his wall through military resources. Uh, another thing that could happen, Trump strikes a deal with Congress. Is this possible? Uh, Trump met with congressional leaders at the White House this past Wednesday in, an, in another effort to resolve the shutdown, only to end up walking out when Democrats remained firm on no wall funding. This is according to his frickin' Twitter. This is one thing he tweeted. So tweeted, he said, just left a meeting with Chuck and Nancy. A total waste of time. I asked what is going to happen in 30 days if I quickly open things up. Are you going to approve border security, which includes a wall or a steel barrier? Nancy said, no. I said, bye-bye. Nothing else works. <laughs> My God. That's a... That is a... <laughs> I said, bye-bye. I got bye. criticized for swearing too much on the show recently, so I'm not... That is... In, that's a presidential tweet. I said, <laughs> that'll, bye-bye. That'll be in the Library of Congress. Okay. So let's just say that perhaps that doesn't work. What are some other options? The shutdown continues... Uh, again, as we said, 800,000 800, federal workers, uh, you know, not uh, not getting paid. Over the last 20 days, federal employees have shared their fears of affording rent, making uh, credit card payments and so on, as we've discussed. So that's basically what we got. He can compromise with Congress. He can declare a national emergency, uh, which is going to be challenged in the courts. And we're going to talk about that with Lance here coming up in a second. And uh, otherwise, you know, people are just going to continue to be screwed over. The, the administration is promising that tax refunds will be processed on time and federal food assistance will continue. But it seems clear the administration didn't realize this was a possible outcome when they began. This may be a partial government shutdown, but the impact on the lives of Americans and on the U.S. economy as a whole is significant and growing. So congratulations. We've set another record. Longest shutdown in U.S. history uh, under Donald Trump. So I guess this is making America the greatest country on the face of the planet. Setting records. As far as like what will happen, I think if he if he was going to use his executive authority and have soldiers, you know, do the job for it, I think he would have done it already, honestly. And the fact that he's getting he's like stamping out or he's stomping out of uh, meetings with with Chuck Schumer. Bye bye. Bye bye. I bye think bye. that shows that he doesn't have like the balls to actually do the executive order Honestly, stuff. man, I don't I know. I don't think so. And he's not going to make any kind of deal. I think what's going to happen is there's going to be like some symbol of him winning, some like Somewhere. some lame version of a wall that he's going to like extort money out of some steel barrier or something kind of and then he's going to it's, it's going to be it's going to pale into in comparison yeah, but, to what he actually wants and he's going to call it a victory in his base will yeah but you know him. what maybe his base will like it but he's not expanding the base whatsoever and uh, I, I i have a feeling he's peeling off support even from them Hey everyone, today's episode is brought to you by Quip. They know New Year's resolutions are tough. Starting a healthy routine and sticking to it are two very different things. We all end up skimping on that full night of sleep, skip a workout or two, or brush our teeth with a tired old toothbrush. We're not perfect, but we can do better. And Quip is the better electric toothbrush that can help. Did you know 75% of us use old, worn-out bristles that are ineffective? The Quip delivers brush heads automatically on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5. It's a friendly reminder for when it's time to refresh your bristles and to stay committed to your oral health. 
The Quip comes with a multi-use cover that works as a stand, sticks to mirrors, and slides over your bristles to pack and protect your Quip on the go. The Quip runs for three months on a single charge, and with no wires or clunky charger, the Quip keeps your bathroom uncluttered and is perfect for traveling. Quip is one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association. They're backed by over 25,000 dental professionals, and they have thousands of verified five-star reviews. That's why I personally love Quip, and over 1 million happy, healthy mouths do too. Get Quip at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash top hat right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack for free at getquip.com slash top hat. Right now, I'm honored to have with me an attorney who is practicing immigration law in San Antonio, Texas. He's on the front lines of this. Lance Kurtwright is with me. Thank you so much for being on the show, man. Thank you for having me. So you have worked in immigration as a lawyer for multiple uh, administrations. You said that you worked while George W. Bush was in office, while Obama was in office, and now we have what's going on uh, with Donald Trump. Could you um, just give our audience a feel of what what are some of the differences uh, now that you that you have um, uh, been able to experience with Trump versus Obama versus W? Because obviously W came out. He was a, a little bit more of um, a compassionate conservative when it comes to immigration, to use his uh, nomenclature, um, talking about, uh, you know, immigration in a much more traditional sense. And then we have Obama, who was called deporter, uh, deporter in chief. And a lot of people thought uh, he sort of turned his back on a lot of the liberals that put him in office. They thought he was maybe too hawkish on immigration. And now we have what's going on uh, with Donald Trump, which has led us to now, I think, 21 days going into a shutdown. So what are some of the differences within these administrations? Right. Well, so Bush came in there, and actually under his administration, uh, somewhat surprisingly, that was our best chance to get comprehensive immigration reform. With right. The, uh, they actually tried to pass that bill. But, you know, even when he came into office, that was right after September uh, 11. And right. they they implemented a lot of really restrictive uh, programs, including making um, a lot of Muslims register. Hmm. So there's a lot of fear in the community at that time period. Right. There's a lot more people being arrested um, as compared to the Obama years. Right. So Obama comes in and he, he has this um, situation where a lot of people from Central America are coming to the uh, port of entry and want to seek asylum, and he starts deporting a lot of people without, uh, you know, at the border and kind of really, really turning people around quickly. Right. And um, that's why he got that name, Deporter-in-Chief. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure that's completely fair to him, because the way he treated a lot of people inside the country was pretty good. I mean, he did pass DACA. Mm-hmm. He did try to pass the DAPA program, which really would have provided relief for millions of uh, people, I mean, thousands of immigrants, but then their families, right. their spouses. So many people would have been better off. You would have had undocumented people getting work authorization, mm-hmm. which would have been to return, giving them Social Security cards, which would have made them taxpayers. Mm. I mean, it would have been great for our economy. Right, right. And then there's Donald Trump. And the, the words impunity um, that I think uh, is happening because it's so inconsistent that we tell clients when they start a case that, well, for example, um, you're going to qualify for asylum because you are uh, – single mother from Guatemala, and you've been abused. Right, right. No doubt about that. That's a problem in the country. Right. The police do nothing to stop it, so forth and so on. The Board of Immigration Appeals has said this is a recognized social group that will qualify this client, this hypothetical client, for asylum. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then Obama, through Jeff Sessions, goes through a lot of Trump, rather. Not Obama, Trump. Trump, right, Trump, through Jeff Sessions, 
goes through a lot of these different rules that were hard and fast uh, rules of asylum and changes them. So what you have are people who start the asylum process with one set of rules, right. and through the attorney general and his capriciousness, um, they're changing the, the rules. Right. So that's just one aspect of it. I mean, the Trump administration and how they've attacked immigrants has many different um, you know, varieties, which we can talk about. Right. But really what he's doing is he, he changed the rules midstream. Right. So obviously people going through the process... Uh, legally, such as what happened with DACA recipients, and now, of course, they're uh, they have a lot of fear within that community. When when is ICE going to come knocking on their doors and drag them away? Mm-hmm. Um, what are what's what's your sense right now within specifically the Hispanic community? Because it seems as if they're the targets, and I do want to expand a little bit more later on in the conversation. Uh, under W, you mentioned how it was Muslims, and Muslims are still under attack under Trump. Uh, as well, but mm-hmm. it's just interesting how the the focus seems to shift from groups of people that might not be fully franchised, uh, still disenfranchised in many ways. Um, the, the the blame the immigrant rhetoric. Have you ever seen anything? Is that rhetoric coming from Trump really? How is that resonating within the community of immigrants? Well, it's causing causing extreme amounts of fear. I think politically, it's always nice to have a a, a scapegoat. In right. Trump's, Really, kind of lashed upon these this you know alleged crisis that he's manufactured himself through right. his actions. Um, so yeah, I mean, complete fear, um, and there's a lot of misinformation. Right. What would you have to what What would you say if you have to talk to somebody? You're you're just at a tavern. Someone says, "I think we got to build the wall." I think Trump is just mm-hmm. he, you know we got to take care of Americans. He's putting the Democrats want to put uh, illegals. They say illegal aliens, which I think is so offensive because they're human beings. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know they're not coming from outer space for crying out loud. But what would you tell them? What is the key piece of misinformation that we are being fed right now? Um, like uh, and tell them how 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 do you convince them? what the truth actually is. Well, I think you have to start from the very beginning, and that's with the, the falsehood that this is a crisis at mm-hmm. the border. Um, I think it's been well reported that there's really no crisis at the border, and, and I think the majority of Americans know that. Um, but when you're talking to someone who's adamantly for the wall, it's kind of hard to find some common common ground um, right. because they believe there is a crisis. So you have this, you have this you know, a priori issue of what is true. Right, um, and you have to really kind of unpack a lot of the misinformation the administration is giving out on a daily basis, tweet by tweet. So that's why I'd start. I mean, just start. Well, who is actually coming to the United States and why? Okay. So it's not a bunch of people coming illegally from Mexico as it was in years past. Mm-hmm. Really, what you have are Central Americans, primarily you know women and their children, mm-hmm. who are trying to enter the country legally to get asylum. But what the administration has done has, is they have metered their entries, meaning mm-hmm. they're not going to take them all in at once, causing them to stay in squalor in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And then when they get here, they separate them from their families, as they've done in the past, uh, or they put them in detention. Right. All of these policies have actually increased illegal entries because people you know, want to get in the United States and they don't want to stay in their conditions in Mexico, which is also dangerous. So it's kind of ironic because you know, the president says he wants to stop the illegal entries, but at the same time, through his own policies, he's actually increasing them. Interesting. So sort of a unintended consequence um, of so-called being being tough on uh, immigration is that because it's now no longer a viable option to go through a port of entry uh, to uh, to request asylum, there's more people going in illegally. That's that's exactly right. So so if we have Donald Trump talking about I believe the the uh, administration said that there was four thousand people coming 
up through the southern border that uh, were detained because they were on a terror watch list or because they were accused of terrorism. Now we come to find out that that number was actually six. Um, <laughs> when dealing I heard that. <laughs> when dealing with this alternate universe, um, are you working with people? What what do you tell? your clientele that you're that you're defending on a regular basis uh what do you tell them as far as their legal options now uh when it comes to seeking asylum or when it comes to being able to stay in this country what is their legal recourse because it seems to me like it's just been so unbelievably diminished because now we have this narrative uh that they possibly are a terrorist right well I think what I, what I start is usually kind of trying to ease some of the, the terror and the, some of the fear. And the way I do that typically is by reminding everyone that although the Trump administration can obviously do a lot of damage to immigrants and to in many other areas of the law, right. uh, immigration law is still based upon acts of Congress. Mm-hmm. And Congress hasn't passed any meaningful immigration bill since 96. So, and I don't think there's any really chance that they're going to do that anytime soon. Why? Why do you think that is? We can't get any immigration law passed in this country. But finish with your point, and then we can talk about that. Well, so, yeah. So, most of the things that people are applying for are by our acts of Congress. Congress is the uh, is the body that passes bills that says who gets green cards, who can apply for citizenship, and that sort of thing. Now, certainly on the... Uh, on the outside, the administration can make that more difficult by changing right. its prosecution guidelines, as happened from Obama to Trump. That was a major, major shift. What were the changes there from Obama to Trump specifically? Well, in a very general sense, Obama said, hey, let's focus our, our resources on criminal aliens, uh, people who uh, are here undocumented and have committed a crime, as he says, right. uh, people who are terrorists, things of that nature. And Trump kind of said, well, we're going to focus on everyone. If you recall, Obama had the prosecutorial discretion guidelines where he allowed ICE attorneys to um, administratively close, which means stop the deportation process Mm. for people who were here uh, living without any um, problems with the law. Okay. Uh, Now, Trump, one of the first things he did was he says, hey, there's nobody here that doesn't have a problem with the law while he's president, and he's trying to go after everyone, which is clogging up the immigration courts who already have historic backgrounds, uh, backlogs. Right, right. So uh, it is on Congress to make these uh, to make these laws. Obviously, as you just mentioned, the president does have quite a bit of power as well. Politically, through your years of experience in this, why has it been so hard to get comprehensive immigration reform through? Wow. Well, that's a tough question. I, I don't. I'm not sure. I have. I have all the answers to this. But I think right now, what's happening is there's a real sense that uh, immigration and immigrants in general are um, causing problems in the United States. I think that's based upon a lot of the mistruth that Donald Trump um, is, is passing. Right. But I think that played well politically for him. And I think it's, you know, again, it's convenient to have a scapegoat. And I think Donald Trump found immigrants to be that scapegoat. And, and people wrote, he wrote it to the election. So I think that's the problem today. Right. That we have in this administration. It's not the same problem I think we've had years past. I think when Obama was president, I think it was politically convenient for the Republicans to oppose that. Mm-hmm. And when, when Bush was president, I think that, you know, I can't remember exactly who sponsored that bill, but I want to say it was McCain and somebody else. Um, there's a real chance to pass some uh, immigration um, uh, reform in the, at that right. time. But again, it kind of stalled out, I think, because of the extreme right wing uh, wasn't going to get on board. I think that sunk it. So it's always been kind of this political ping pong. I think it's convenient for people to have gridlock in this 
um, on this issue right, politically. Of, of course, and I think, uh, as you mentioned, it is extremely easy to pick on a small group of people that really don't have uh, a lot of rights. What are, if you are someone who is here and you're undocumented, what rights do you have? Uh, if, if one of our audience members is listening and uh, perhaps they've overstayed their visa, which of course is extremely common, that's the vast majority of people who are currently in the country illegally, um, it's because they overstayed a visa. What rights do they have or is it really uh, just whenever ICE wants to come or whenever the crackdown happens, they're totally going to be screwed? Well, you know, I still have to have probable cause to effectuate an arrest. And I always tell my clients that if that happens, uh, you know, be respectful, but don't say anything, don't sign anything, call me right away. Because mm-hmm. what will happen under the uh, Trump administration is that they uh, arrest first and ask questions later. So right. what they typically will do is they'll take someone into custody. And if that person starts saying, my name is, you know, Lance Curtright, and I'm from uh, Ireland or wherever, and they I don't have any papers to be here, that all those statements can be used against you in an immigration uh, deportation proceeding. Right. So it's always best to say nothing and to sign nothing, and that's just a, a general rule for life. Never say anything to a law enforcement agent without your lawyer beside you. Um, right, so of course. I tell them not to say anything, and, and then just know that you're going to go to jail, and they're going to put you in custody for a while, and then um, the, most people will file, will qualify for a bond, which, you know, we'll try to get them a bond as quickly as we can. Right. San Antonio, you're looking about maybe a week to two, uh, to a week and a half before you get that bond hearing. But you have a right to a bond hearing. You have a right to a lawyer. You have a right to stay quiet. Mm. You don't have to answer a lot of the questions. You don't have to let people in your house without them showing you a warrant. Um, you know, a lot of the same rights that we have as American citizens apply as well uh, to people here in the interior. Um, but I think what I see a lot is people you know, wanting to maybe talk to what's out of it, maybe saying, oh, you know, don't pick me up, or yeah, you're right, I'm here illegally, thinking that's going to help them. Right. But it's not. So, you know, Texas is just a fascinating state right now. I, I love uh, what's been going on. If you look at what happened uh, with Beto uh, coming close with Ted Cruz, it seems like mm-hmm. Texas is turning a little bit um, purple. Obviously, you have a lot of ranchers out there. Uh, my co-host here, who's usually here, Marcus, uh, his family uh, has a ranch. Um, a lot of Hispanic workers uh, in Texas. Where is Texas at right now when it comes to immigration? Because I feel like, and maybe I'm wrong here, I feel like a lot of the anti-immigrant rhetoric is resonating in places where perhaps uh, the fear-mongering works because uh, there, you, you were talking about maybe uh, in, in Wisconsin or in Michigan where maybe there isn't actually a large immigration population. What, what are your, what's your feeling right now of Texas previously thought to be blood red and now it seems to be coming a little bit more purple? Do you think they're more rational on this issue? Well, I think so. I, I, think, it's coming, I think it's coming to terms with this immigration issue. You know, these people are not um, – they're not these people we're hearing, talking about in political debates. These are our neighbors. These right. they send their kids to our schools. They go to our churches. They're in our community. So that's very real for a lot of Texans. That's not to say it's not very divided. I would say mm-hmm. the Beto Cruz um, uh, election really kind of showed that divide, mm-hmm. um, not necessarily on immigrant immigration, but any other issues. But when you unpack the immigration issues of the day, I think some of them really affect Texans, and they're kind of rankling against it. For example, the border wall. Right. Um, you're talking about taking a lot of property from a lot of Texans yep. um, for, a, for a farce, for a wall that is not going to work based upon a manufactured crisis. Right. So I think when you're talking about you know, people for, in Wisconsin versus Texas, you may, they might be both 
red-blooded Republicans, but the person who's losing his land is going to be far more reasonable about this than the person who's not. Right. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I think they are coming around. I think, obviously, we're, we have a lot more Hispanic voters here in Texas that are becoming more politically active and, and might want to vote for uh, somebody who's more reasonable on immigration reform. Right. Um, I, think, I think Beto kind of encapsulated some of that and Hopefully he can move that into the national stage. When we t- you've mentioned the this uh, manufactured national crisis, which is exactly uh, what he, what it is. Um, it fascinates me how maybe the the more uh, freedom caucus people who uh, might be a little bit more libertarian support this president who is now vastly increasing uh, the power of the office when it comes to mm-hmm. when it comes to declaring a national emergency. Can you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about? Previous administrations, when they used a national emergency, I know after 9-11, obviously, national emergency, that was that was declared. What's the difference between this current crisis and previous administrations? Well, the difference is there's no emergency here. Um, right. I don't, well, that's a big difference. There's no, crisis, <laughs> there's no crisis at the border. Um, I, I think and I hope that if he does declare a crisis that's immediately challenged in the courts, where I would remind your listeners that we've had, as immigration advocates, great success challenging many of these Trump proposals. Okay. Um, and I think that's where this one will go to die, um, like so many of the other Trump proposals. Right. But it's hard to see that on you know January 11th that he has a way out of this because he's really backed himself, uh, forgive my, my metaphor, against a wall. Yeah. Where he has to build the wall to uh, to uh, appease his base in Ann Coulter. So it's of gonna course. Be, it's going to be hard for him to get out of that without doing something. So. I guess what he's going to fall back upon is this uh, this idea of an emergency uh, that he's going to declare. But you know, it's it's not an emergency, and I think right. it's an abuse of that of that presidential prerogative. And I think the courts will see that and hopefully not allow it to happen. Well, I don't want to correct you at all. Obviously, you're the attorney, but he's backed himself <laughs> against the steel slats. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't want to. You know, I'm not gonna. Uh, so y- you mentioned how the courts have been fair on this issue for the most part. What, because I think that that really does, the, the irony of this current administration is it is showing me that our system is, it holds. It holds when yeah. we have someone literally trying to ruin it from the inside, from the most powerful office in the world, certainly in this country. What are some yeah. wins that you have seen that make you optimistic uh, when it comes to this immigration debate in the courts? Well, uh, it's not necessarily a win, but one of the things that comes to mind is the uh, litigation on family separation. I think we've done mm. some good things there. Right. Um, that's probably the first one that comes to mind. Uh, let's see. Uh, we've Oh, the DACA cases have been great so far. Um, the, the impunity on the DACA cases where he's going to come in there and say he declares DACA to be illegal and therefore the program to be illegal and therefore he's going to stop it. Right. Um, and then the courts say, well, actually, it wasn't an illegal program. <laughs> so you, you, you can't. You can't stop it. I thought that was just a really a glorious uh, bit of legal uh, uh, legal analysis and great lawyering by the people who put that together. That's probably my favorite win um, so far. We'll keep counting, though, hopefully. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, of course, we've supported DACA recipients since day one. I think it was uh, the least we could do, uh, create a path mm-hmm. to citizenship. Um, because, you know, to me, I'm just a layman here, um, but to me it mm-hmm. just seems totally ironic that we can't have a conversation about getting a path to citizenship, a reasonably timed path to citizenship, and then we just have this whole 
They're here illegally, but they're here illegally because there are no no doors open for them. Finally, DACA comes in, opens a window at the very least, and then they want to shut that. So what is it just seems like this vicious cycle of political parties, specifically Republicans in this case, they create this issue. Do you think they aren't they the ones who are creating the very uh, nature of the issue of uh, undocumented or illegal people here? Well, certainly a certain uh, segment of the party is. I would say that the uh, more business-minded segments of the party are are maybe in favor of DACA. Right. Um, You know, just think about it from an economic point of view. um, We've educated these children. We've sent them to our colleges. They're now working and creating businesses and, Mm -hmm. you know, generating income for the United States, paying taxes, raising their children here. Um, contributing to our community in many, many other ways, and we want to send them back um, and lose all of those things that they're providing for us? It right. makes no sense. Absolutely. After we invested our resources, they've gone to our public schools. Uh, I just don't. It, it really does uh, make zero sense, except for if you're thinking from a political perspective and you're a congressperson who wants to win re-election. That's the only sense it makes, and I think that's what drives people freaking crazy like when nixon mm. d- squashed a peace deal in vietnam so he could run on the platform of, of vietnam yeah. you know i mean that kind yeah. of stuff just is that's why when we talk about congress at 11 percent approval rating it's laughable but it's also exceptionally sad and i think that's why they're so low yeah well we, we let them to do to do something to make things better for us and they're, they're just doing nothing on this but right Hopefully there's a there's a new house and uh, representatives a majority of Democrats and hopefully they they uh, see this issue and can do something about it. Um, I don't have a lot of hope though. <laughs> well, who knows? Who knows? Obviously, uh, Chuck Schumer and Nancy they gave their rebuttal to Donald Trump's Oval Office speech, and I don't know why someone told them to look like Bond villains, but evidently uh, that was the that was the theatrical note given. Um, when it comes to Trump's base, obviously he does well in rural areas. He does well uh, with the farmer uh, with farmers and uh, and people in that uh, agricultural fields. Um, but now we have what happened with the tariffs. Uh, obviously, because the government is shut down uh, in order to make up for the losses, in order to recoup those losses, uh, they passed, I believe it was a $12 billion stimulus, basically, for farmers. But now they're not going to be able to get it. And farming, for as long as I freaking know, has sort of been predicated on cheap immigration labor. Do you see those agriculture, the, the leaders of agriculture, the, the farmers and stuff like that, do you see them at some point just turning their back? on this immigration hardline policy, because at the end of the day, they, they need work. I think they're going to have to. I, I, I mean, I talk to many ranchers and farmers here in South Texas, and, you know, a lot of them rely upon uh, immigrants to help with their cattle and, and help with their day-to-day work. And, right. um, you know, it's not even a question of, of, you know, U.S. citizens who might be able to do the job. There's just nobody out there. You're talking about sure. major parts of rural Texas where there's no one there, and they need somebody out there who can help them. And some of these folks have been helping them for years and decades even, um, and now they're thinking maybe they should go back or maybe right. uh, maybe they're not wanted here. And, you know, the ranchers are, and some of these people I've talked to say, no, you're wanted here, and um, we just need to get through this because this is kind of the way the United States does immigration policy by the, the winds of, of Washington politics. Um, there's never been a permanent fix. There's never right. been a real a real clear-eyed vision of what we should do on immigration. Um, so we're getting stuck in these 
um, demagogues who come up and blame the, the immigrants for all of our nation's woes. Right. It's just not true. And I think I think every um, you know rational American knows it. Oh, sure. Um, and hopefully can see through it. Well, I'm interested because you mentioned how people are coming over the border. They're seeking asylum because uh, women and children, uh, because of violence in their home countries of Honduras, uh, Guatemala, obviously Mexico. I mean, we've talked about this previously mm-hmm. in 2016. I believe it was 58,000 deaths, murders, and the only worst nation was Syria, uh, which has a wow. little bit of a war going on. <laughs> what do you think the U.S. could actually do? I think uh, when it comes to policy, if we want to stop immigration, don't we need to kind of um, help those societies in some ways um, so that people can stay there? Uh, what Do you have any insight on to what policies you would like to see the government uh, put in place so we don't have caravans of people seeking you uh, refuge in our nation because they can stay in their countries uh, because now there has been uh, peace? Well, that is the ultimate question. I think whenever you're talking about Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, you have to realize that you're really talking about failed states here. Right. These are situations where you know the government's not working well enough to protect their children. Um, it's where a situation where caravans are coming to the United States, and and you know we think I guess Donald Trump thinks that's a crisis. But think of it from those countries' perspective. They're really forfeiting their futures. I mean, here come their future lawyers, doctors, and journalists. Right. Um, here comes all their children up through Mexico, crossing those those dangerous parts. Ugh. So in order for us to ever actually be serious about how we're going to you know, solve this problem for them and for us, we have to get into the weeds of those countries and see, well, what's causing this? Right. And you do have impunity in some of those governments. Uh, you do have a large amounts of... of of corruption. Mm-hmm. You do have gangs who not only are in those countries, they are running large parts of those countries right. as though they are the government. They're quasi-governmental. Um, and so how we go about tackling all those problems, all the, all the things they, they present is you know, beyond my pay grade, but right. I would say this doesn't, it, it can't start with us withdrawing our aid from them, uh, as I think has been discussed. Right. It has to start with full-on engagement where we actually, you know, have to do a little bit of nation building here to our south southern border and try to try to make these countries get so they can stand up on their own right um, and that's going to require possibly a, you know a lot of liaison through multiple different liaisoning through multiple different agencies right. to make that happen yep um, but that's the only way I think that ultimately fixes this problem yeah absolutely and of course this administration is as, as shallow as Donald Trump as shallow as a uh, as an Easter egg bunny. Um, a chocolate Easter egg bunny, that is. Um, so I don't think they're going to be doing that anytime soon because that's comprehensive. No. It's difficult. And it would take both parties, I think, um, committed to, to, to actually doing it. Um, so I completely yeah. agree. We, we've got to go to the source. And then uh, all these people who are razzled about immigration and flood, flooding of immigrants over the border, well, if you want to solve it, that's how you do it. You got to nip it in the bud. You got to go to where it's the the problem begins, and then we don't. Right, have- we're going to spend five billion dollars on on something. It should Ugh. be on on that. Absolutely, not on a checklist wall. Absolutely, uh, and of course, when you get over here now, we have just absolutely inhumane, horrible policies. Can you talk? Do you have any insight? We heard about uh, obviously. Uh, as you mentioned before, previously with family separation, we saw the images of the children um, being ripped from their mothers and fathers. And we've seen images now of a lot of abuse of children happening in these detention centers. A couple in Texas, I think, had to be closed. What, what insight do you have on the day to day conditions? 
You cross the border, you you get uh, whatever processed. Uh, next thing you know, you're seven, eight year old. You're away from your family. What's the uh, what's that process look like? Well, it's not pretty. Um, you know, even before we had uh, the situation with children, we had complaints about some of these centers where they're holding people. You know, they have these like metallic-looking blankets that you see on TV. Yeah, they're caging these people up. Um, you know, it's the word comes to mind. It's not. It's inhumane, and we we can do better. I think. I, I think. You know, in fairness, I think a lot of some of the agents who are actually taking them in and trying to deal with them. Um, They've lacked the training to deal with this. They're, right. not, you know, they're not trained to see, um, you know, someone who might be ill, for example, who came across the border. They're just trying to, you know, corral everybody. Um, so if we're going to, and, we're, if we, and we have to, take these people in, we have to consider the human elements of that. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about children. You don't want to scar them anymore. They've already been scarred. You want to make sure there's healthcare professionals. You want to make sure that they're uh, received in a situation that is not jail-like, but more school-like. More, right family-friendly, um, so we can, you know, so for so long as they are with us, we can treat them as, uh, you know, as giving them, giving them the humanity that they, that they deserve. Absolutely. Um, regardless of how they enter the country, because, you know, um, even if you enter the country, you are de- illegally, you are definitely deserving all those things. So that's obviously on the front end is the separation. And then you have the back end with the reunification. And I've heard mm-hmm. stories, I've read a few stories about Literally, people being like, is, like they can't match the kids. They can't match mm-hmm. the kids to the parents. What is, mm-hmm. uh, which is just uh, mind blowing, how you could take a kid and not be able to get its parent uh, to get connected back to its parent. What? Uh, why is that so bad? Um, is it as bad as uh, as some of the articles that I've read when it comes to the reunification of children with their parent or parents? Yes. Well, I think my understanding is that they didn't really keep track of that when they first came in, and then they kind of lost track of everyone. Um, so, yeah, it, when that happens, it's as bad as you can possibly imagine. I mean, I have three daughters, and I, I just, you know, shiver when I think about how that, how those people must be feeling. Right. Yeah, it's, it's awful. Um, and, you know— I don't know if they're doing enough to make it ha- make them these families get back together. Some of these people have been deported, um, yep. so going and trying to find them in a country where you know violence is everywhere is it's going to be extremely problematic. Um, yeah, so I think it's as, I think it's as bad as bad as it can get, and I really think history is going to judge us very very poorly for uh, this time period. Oh. Um, Absolutely. I mean, I hope that history judges us poorly for this time period. If if they embrace it like it was a good experience, I don't want to live in the present of whatever the future is. Um, Exactly right. Well, we got to work for a better future. Absolutely. Uh, So then what happens to those kids? If they're in a detention center, their parents or, or, or again, parent uh, got deported back to Honduras. What now? What do we do with this child? You know, I think that depends on the child. There's, I mean, include the foster care system. We have some who uh, actually qualify for immigration benefits through uh, the special immigrant juvenile system program. Um, some of them are applying for asylum on their own. Right. We have a, a docket in San Antonio that it, it convenes weekly where they only hear kids' cases. You know, they bring them all in. They get all dressed up where they wear their ties and everything, and they have to go and sit in front of the judge. I have a question about that. So is it true, then, that the child is sort of – in charge of their own destiny that they have a lot of like they're asking i saw a clip as a young a a two-year-old was being asked if they wanted to stay or go i'm like this it's a baby um are, are they really in that do they have that much of a responsibility at that young of an age 
Uh, well, typically they're going to have some type of person helping guide guide those decisions and answer them for them. I don't think a two-year-old is going to necessarily always say, I want to get deported. Um, and the judge here who handles these is extremely empathetic and understands the situation very, very well. Um, so I don't... I, I heard about that case too. I, I don't think that's happening here. I okay. That anyway. Okay. Well, that that is at least uh, a good, good, brighter news because I know you have to be careful. I I always try to be uh, moderate and and uh, and cautious because I don't want to fall into the fear mongering on either side. Um, because yeah. you know, well, it, I'm not denying it didn't happen. I just I, I haven't seen it personally. Okay, interesting. <laughs> so just yeah. just lastly, when it comes to you mentioned Wall Street Republicans, people maybe more fiscally conservative. Uh, just they mm-hmm. they believe in the economy. They want the free market. They must be going crazy. What went on with TPP and now uh, basically uh, the CPTPP, where the Canadians are now opening up with ten other countries opening up the Asia Pacific market without us. Um, they they must be pulling their hair out. But they also right. understand um, the fiscal responsibility of housing uh, this many people in in these facilities. Do you have any insight into the cost? What does it cost for us as a people, uh, as a nation, to uh, to to finance one child in in federal custody? Well, that's one angle to look at that issue. But I think this whole custody bit of immigration is big business. These uh, privately funded prisons who are, you know, traded on Wall Street, they're making a lot of money. Um, and they build these huge yep. jails in Texas where they can hold 2,000 souls. And yep. those people bank. Uh, that's big money. And some of those little towns, they're propped up by that. Interesting. Um, so I think the uh, whenever you got more people detained, someone's making a lot of money um, on that. And, I, you know, the taxpayer's not. They're spending money on it. I don't really know how much they they pay per day, but it's not cheap. Um, but someone's making money, and that's those corporately corporate prisons. You know, I'm so happy you brought that up. This will we can just end it with this. But uh, that I was that was my last um, kind of question line of questioning I had regarding uh, the private prisons, Core Civic, Geo Group, uh, the mm-hmm. amount of people who once they're rounded up in these uh, you know ICE invasions, uh, they go to these private prisons where they're held. So how much money is being made, uh, the aforementioned the Texas uh, holding area, which is literally a for- former super Walmart, which is so, like, <laughs> ironic, and, and it's just – it's almost artistic how sad that is. How much money mm. is being made on detention, and because of that, is there, again, any motivation to change? Well, I can only estimate how much money, but my guess is in the millions. Um, but I think that's a real, real reason why a lot of people – are saying, yes, we need to detain everyone. We need to detain more. I think there's right. probably a powerful lobby behind that. And I, and that's certainly going to be a, a force against change and right. a powerful voice for people who are supporting Donald Trump's mistruths about how immigrants are criminals. Right, right. I mean, to monetize human suffering, mm. it, it, it seems like it's anti-American, but is this something when it comes? Uh, there's a great documentary. It's a little bit older now, but the 13th Amendment talking about uh, Angola prison, literally built on a slave plantation, and basically, uh, once you criminalize everything and choose to criminalize a people, uh, you got slavery right back. Are this uh, what's happening right now? Are these people new slave labor? Are immigrants being detained the new slave labor? Well, I don't know if they're doing much labor. I don't know what they're doing in those jails. I think they're just kind of um, 
staying there. But I think the analogy about how we're treating them is is close to that. Uh, you know, we're talking about a whole group and we're putting them in jails and people are making money off of it. And that's immoral. It's wrong. And it needs to stop. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, let's see. Is there anything else that you would like to touch on, Lance? Oh, wow. We talked about a lot. Um, yeah, I think I think we got it covered. I, I, well, I guess we could talk about the shutdown. Um, yeah, let's let's. That's been a real that's been a real problem. I have a case right now that maybe your listeners would be interested in hearing about. Absolutely. Where she's been in deportation proceedings before the court for eight years. Um, actually, well, not going on nine years. Okay. 2019. Um, and the way we plan on getting her her green card is based upon in part her U.S. citizen husband. And we need to get a hearing in order to finalize the case. Um, right. And her husband is in hospice care and he's dying. Oh. And we can't get that hearing because they're not funded. Uh, because of the government shutdown. Because of the shutdown. So in the old days, when something uh. that was happening, we would reach out to ICE lawyers. And, you know, they're very sympathetic to this type of situation. And we'd say, hey, look, you know, we got to get a hearing. And then we'd get a judge and the judge would, you know, accommodate us by giving us a hearing, I think, in, these, in this type of case. Right. But, you know, now they're not allowed to because they're not getting paid because the government is not being funded because of this fiction that we need a wall. So the backlog right now, obviously, as you just mentioned, there's no immigration courts that are open. And isn't that... Well, the detained the detain courts are working. So if you're in okay. jail, you're still going... You're still having your case heard. But okay. the non-detained docket is the the bulk of the cases are on the non-detained docket. Okay. And that has stopped. Ugh. It's a little ironic, too, if you think about it. Because, it's extremely ironic, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, so basically he's saying, you know, we need to enforce immigration laws. We need immigration judges to hear these cases. But then he stopped funding them, so they can't. And so all these Ugh. cases are being rescheduled, postponed, and canceled. They'll probably be set out to 2020, possibly even 2021. Um, and it's just ballooning the uh, the backlog. Unbelievable. Um, so he's really working against himself in some situations. Absolutely. Well, just uh, I guess we can put on our prediction caps, and I'm sure both of us will be wrong. When do you think? Uh, because I, I'm done with the prediction game, but I, mm-hmm. I we still play it every now and again. What do you think yeah. is the final outcome of this shutdown? Is Trump taking the massive hit? I think it always goes up to the head. Uh, and I think they, the president is always blamed in these situations. Or does somehow uh, he manage to squirm out of this as he has squirmed out of so many other political debacles? Well, I predict he claims victory no matter what happens. Of course. Um, and I predict that uh, he claims an emergency and tries to build a wall without congressional support. I predict that that gets defeated in the courts, but it will take you know months before that happens. Um, and people will forget about what happened, and this will be a, a footnote to 2018, 2019. Oh, yep, that's extremely possible. The longest government <laughs> shutdown in U.S. history could simply be forgotten about with, I don't know, another tweet, I guess. There's so many, there's so much litigation <laughs> going on in immigration. It's just case to case, day to day. You know, we come to work, look at his Twitter feed, and then, you know, conduct ourselves accordingly. Jeez, unbelievable. Lance Kurtwright, thank you so much for being with me today. Practicing immigration attorney out of San Antonio, Texas. I really appreciate you taking the time, and please come back on the show. Oh, sure. My pleasure. All right. There it was. Thank you all so much for listening. I got to say, I like Lance a lot. He's going to become a regular guest. He's awesome. He's he's awesome. And again, next week, we are honored to have with us Rabia Oshadri. Uh, of course, she wrote a, uh, the book on Adnan Syed. Um, of course, who was the the subject of serial? So we're going to talk about criminal justice reform, about immigration, uh, just about the the politics uh, right now surrounding people of color, specifically uh, immigrants. Um, so it's going to be absolutely fascinating. So don't forget to tune in next week. 
Um, okay, everyone, I hope you enjoyed the show. Find me on Instagram at BenKissel1. Uh, go to lastpodnetwork.com on Twitter. Follow that account and you can get all the shows right there. Just set a notification or something. And I'm on Twitter at BenKissel, trying to engage a little bit more, uh, but still not going too crazy. Okay, everyone, hail yourselves. We'll talk to you soon. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.